Didn't Mary do a great job for her first time doing announcements? Yes. Okay. It, is, it can be very nerve-wracking up here, so way to go, Mary. Uh, well, guys, this morning, as I unpack all my stuff here, uh, we are going to be continuing our journey uh, through the book of Revelation. And I just want to take a minute to remind y'all uh, kind of where we have been in that up until this point. So last week, uh, we talked about uh, the, the paradox that's at the very center of what it means for us to be Christians. Right, so we unpacked Revelation 4 and 5. And if you remember, it's this vision uh, that John gets of the throne room of God. And there's this moment where, where there's a, that God in his, in his hand, he's holding a scroll. And on the scroll is his plan for the fullness of time, uh, for the restoration of all things. And there's no one who's able to open the scroll. And John breaks down and begins to weep because of that. And then one of the elders in this vision puts his hand on John's shoulder and he says, uh, you, you can stop crying. Because there's one who's worthy to open the, open the scroll, and it's the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. And so John turns around, and he expects to see this roaring lion, but what he sees instead is a lamb, right? A lamito is the Greek, right? It's a tiny lamb. It's this diminutive form. It's this, this tiny, sweet lamb who looks as if it has been slain, a lamb that's covered in blood, and we talked about how, how that, that paradox that, that Jesus is both lion and lamb is at the very heart of the Christian faith. A paradox being two things that seem impossible to hold together but nevertheless are true. And that in fact it is by, the, by virtue of being the lamb that Jesus shows us what it means in God's economy to be a lion. That it is through weakness and suffering that the power of the gospel is made manifest in our lives. That our hope, uh, the hope that we have of conquering in this world is, is brought to us through this lamb who has been slain. So this paradox is at the very heart of the Christian faith. Guys, what you've got to know is this, this paradox of the lion who has become the lamb who has been slain for the sins of the world, this paradox has totally revolutionized the history of the world. Do you know that? That the world that we live in is soaked in that conviction, even if we fail to realize it. Let's just talk for a minute about what the ancient world was like uh, before, uh, before this kind of paradox had soaked into the way we think about living. It was an incredibly violent place. It is almost impossible to overstate how violent it was. That about the time of Jesus, when, when uh, the city of Rome, when the, when the Roman Empire was being racked by civil wars, there were these things called prescription lists that would be posted around the city on essentially community bulletin boards. And on those prescription lists were the names of people who uh, had become enemies of the regime. And you could get a reward for bringing the head of one of those people to the authorities. And those lists were ever-evolving and ever-changing. And as the government needed money to finance their invasion of other countries, to finance their armies in these civil wars, more and more names started appearing on the list. And no one batted an eye about it. Because though in the world that they lived in, might equaled right. That was, the, that was the dominant worldview of the day, that if you had power, you deserved it, and you deserved to wield it the way you wanted to wield it. Which is why... Uh, there were babies who were constantly thrown on trash heaps. That if, if, if infants were born and they had some kind of physical abnormality, or if they were born and they, it was a little girl that the family didn't want, they were just left on garbage heaps to die. 
Because this was a world who had no respect for weakness, who had no place for it. And into that world came this paradox of the lion who was, in fact, the lamb who conquered by, by sacrificing himself. And that changed the way that people thought about it, interacted with the world, such that Christians were going around and were pulling babies off of these trash heaps and were adopting them. They're saying there is value and worth and dignity even in people who are incredibly weak and who are outcast, who are cast off by society. There's value there. It totally revolutionized the, even the violence of the ancient world. The, the fact that we live in a time where we find it uh, appropriate to, to criticize abuses of power shows how deeply this idea of there being power uh, in our weakness, that, that power should be uh, hemmed in, that it should be governed by, by moral guidelines, it shows how deeply the Christian worldview has kind of sunk into our psyche. The Christianity has totally revolutionized the way that we look at the world and think about what's good and right and true. Like Mahatma Gandhi, for example. Good guy or bad guy? Just give me some thumbs. Good guy, right? Everyone's like, this, this is a good guy. He's a good guy. Very clear. Okay, do you know that what he was able to accomplish was, in, was astounding? That through nonviolence and through peaceful resistance, he was able to get the most powerful empire of the time, the British Empire, to totally evacuate India. You know the largest influence on his thinking? The teachings of Jesus Christ. Now, Gandhi did not even consider himself a Christian, but what he saw was that uh, the, the Christian worldview, this paradox of the lion who comes as the lamb, that it was incredibly powerful. And he said, I'm going to use that power to shame the British Empire. And it worked. And what we consistently see in our world is that as people begin to move away from this paradox of power, uh, that, that the ramifications in our world when we're looking for other kinds of morality are, uh, are horrific. Isn't that what we see unfolding in Ukraine? A powerful country saying we're going to use our right to do what we want in the world that might equals right? We step back and we look at that and we say, that is not good. We look at the very subtle elimination of Down syndrome in countries like Sweden. What that shows us is that as our worldviews are bent back away from this paradox of the lion being the lamb, that, that what it results in, that what it pulls us back to are, is this pull of, of violence and of the discounting and the undermining of the value of people who are weak and downtrodden. And what we have in Revelation 11 is a call for us as, as the church in this moment. It's the call to the church throughout all of the moments of its history to be a people who embrace this paradox, who put both, of, both arms around it, who, re, who, who claim it and say, this is true about us, that we are a people of this paradox. We are a people who have been saved by the lion who has become the lamb. And because that's true about our Jesus, that is now true about us, that our lives and the way we think about our world are molded by that reality. That's the invitation and the challenge for us in Revelation 11. So I'm going to invite Joanna Cole to come up. Joanna's going to read us our scripture this morning. If you have your Bible, you can flip to Revelation 11. It'll also be up here on the screen behind me. And what we're going to talk about is these two witnesses. And when Joanna's done reading, we'll talk about uh, the identity of these witnesses, 
the message that they brought and the means by which they brought it. And then we'll unpack what that means for us, for our identity as witnesses, for the message that we bring to the world and the means by which we bring it. Okay. Come on up, Joanna. I do not have the microphone. I think Mary's going to hand it to you. This is Revelation 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and the tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. Lord, and as we uh, spend some time unpacking it this morning, Lord, we pray that you would make it clear to us uh, what, you, what you're speaking. Lord, that through uh, what can feel like a maze of images, God, would you uh, 
be speaking clearly to our hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is kind of the first week for us where uh, what we talked about in the beginning of this in the beginning of the sermon series uh, kind of becomes true, where we start to encounter some of the really crazy images that the book of Revelation is known for, right? There's some crazy things happening here, people opening their mouths and fire coming out of them, a beast rising from, the, from a pit to destroy people. And what we're going to find is that as we unpack these images, we're really, uh, we're entering this whole web of meaning that runs really deep in the scriptures, that there are all of these Old Testament pictures that John is pulling forward and bringing into the present. He's making them kind of come alive for us here and now. And what, you, what we have to remember when we are looking at some of these Old Testament connections is that uh, the way that this, the writers of Scripture reference the Old Testament is that they're never only referencing uh, the, the exact words that they use, but they're pulling forward whole ideas, so when they'll, when they'll make a call back to an Old Testament scripture, we might find it in our Bibles kind of cited in one little verse, you know, say Zechariah 6, 8 or whatever. But really what they're doing is they're pulling forward the whole context of that story to help create this, uh, this collage of images. And that's what's happening here in Revelation 11. And the focal point of, of this chapter are these two witnesses. So like I said before, we're going to talk about the identity of these witnesses, their message, and then the means by which they communicate it. So we, we get some clues to who these witnesses are, starting in verse 4. These are two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harden them, fire pours from their mouth, consumes their, consumes their foes. And then in verse 6, they have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Does that ring any, any Old Testament bells for you? This idea of water being turned to blood, of plagues visiting the earth? The ten plagues in Egypt, yes, okay. So this is a call back to the ten plagues in Egypt, which, by the way, your kids studied in Kid Town just a few weeks ago, okay, if you, if you have kids back there. Uh, so these prophets have power like Moses. And then it also talks about the power to shut up the sky and stop it from raining, which is a callback to another Old Testament prophet, Elijah. Elijah. Yes. So these aren't just random, uh, random powers that are being kind of thrown out and heaved on these witnesses. That this is actually a direct reference to people and to characters from the Old Testament being pulled forward into this collage of images. So these witnesses, they're, they're representations of Moses and of Elijah. And when we think of Moses and Elijah, if you've been around church for a while, uh, they are m most well known for their ministry amongst the people of God. Right? You have Moses like bringing down the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai and giving it to God's people. But Moses and Elijah both uh, spoke very clearly not only to God's people, but to the watching world. That their ministry was both internal and external, so to speak. And, and these specific... Uh, authority, the specific authority that they're given here in this passage points to their externally focused witness. And it, it starts to hint for us at what their message is. Because when Moses was in Egypt and he was calling down plagues from heaven, each of those plagues, you've got to know, directly connected to an Egyptian god. So these aren't just random plagues that were being visited on the people, that what God was asserting in the face of Egyptian power was, no, the God of Israel is greater than the gods of Egypt. 
And each of the plagues pointed at that in a very specific way. In that sense, people say that the, the plagues are almost polemic. They're kind of direct refutations of the powers of the Egyptian gods. And it's the same thing with the power to shut up the sky that Elijah had. That in Elijah's day, the people of Israel were contending with the, the worship of his other god, the god Baal. And what Baal was known for in that time is that he was the god who rode on the clouds and the god who brought rain to the earth. And what God was asserting through Elijah was, no, I have so much more authority and so much more power than Baal will ever have. And so the authority that these prophets were given was the authority to show God's power, to testify to God's character in the sight of a watching world. And, and that connects with what is so often the theme of the book of Revelation, which is this theme of truth over lies. Right? The, the picture uh, in, in Revelation and the picture really for these prophets in the Old Testament is that there's essentially a courtroom. And the question being settled in the courtroom is, who has the authority? Who is really God? Is it the gods of the Egyptians? Is it Baal? In the book of Revelation, is it the beast? Is it the Roman Empire? Is it military might? Right? Is it economic power and prowess? Is it might equals right? Or is it the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Is it the God that's revealed to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ? Is it the lion who has become the lamb who was slain? Which of those gods has the power? Who has the authority? And that contest is what's playing out kind of in this divine drama all throughout the book of Revelation. And what these witnesses are doing is that their, their, their message is to, is to illustrate, to show to people, to declare to people the truth of the power and authority of the God of heaven, the God that we are worshiping. That's what they're asserting in the face of so much opposition is the truth of this paradox that the lion has become the lamb who is slain. And what they're saying is that this, this paradox, it's good and it's true and it's beautiful. And because of that, they're calling the people to repent. Now, when we think of repentance, I don't think we, we don't normally think about it as this joyful occasion. But that's what it is. Right? Because what they're saying to the people is that you've got to recognize you're worshiping all these false gods. But these false gods, they have you in chains. It's a prison. That when what you are serving, when what I am serving is our selfish ambition or our pride, it's a, it's a prison to us. When what we are seeking after is worldly power or worldly riches or worldly pleasure, that eventually all of those things become chains to us. And what these prophets are declaring is that that, that, uh, that worship is false worship. It's not going to get us what we want. And so they're saying, no, come and repent. And remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about repentance, that repentance, just to kind of give you the visual, that we, we had a mirror over here, right? I'm being caught up in my sin, my own self-importance, my own self-reliance, and that repentance is turning away from this and seeing what is beautiful about the paradox of the gospel. It's seeing what's beautiful about the lion who's become the lamb who's been slain on our behalf, and it's moving toward that beauty and that truth. That's Repentance. So these prophets who are clothed in sackcloth, I always think of like if you're doing a three-legged race and you've got to use those burlap sacks, you know, that's kind of like what they're covered in. That was the, the, the clothing of repentance, that they're clothed in repentance because they are recognizing that even as prophets of God, even people who are declaring God's truth are people who need to repent themselves. And just as they are in desperate need of repentance, so they're calling other people into that repentance with them and they're telling them there is a God who will meet you there. 
that there's a God of grace and mercy. There's a lamb who was slain for you. And that when you turn from your self-serving, from your ambition and from your pride, from all of these other gods that you serve, that what you're going to find is a God who is desperately in love with his people. The God who has come close to them with his heart of compassion. That's the message of repentance that these two witnesses are bringing out into the world. That's their identity. That's their message. And we're going to talk about the means by which they proclaim that paradox. One of the ways they do it is through their words. When they finish their testimony, which means they were giving testimony to what was true. They were, they were speaking it. And yet what we also see here is that the words weren't very effective. They finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And that what, happened after, what happens after they're killed is that people rejoice, finally. Oh, finally we've been freed from this constant, really this, this constant stream of, of conviction. Finally, I'm free of people telling me that I'm living in a way that is not good for me. Finally, I'm free of that. People are so pumped about it. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And that takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? When God created Adam and he breathed the breath of life into this man he created from the dust of the ground. But there's a new creation going on here. God breathed the breath of life from into them and they stood upon their feet and a great fear fell on all those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched them. That's a callback, yes, to Elijah, but also to Jesus, right? That these witnesses in, the, in their own lives, in their own bodies, that they are, in a sense, recapitulating, they're retelling the story of Jesus. That they're willing to say what is true, to suffer for it, to be killed for it, and then to experience the breath of life, the breath of God being put into them and being resurrected. And this willingness to die and then to experience resurrection, what we see in this passage is that it has a tremendous effect. It says that there's an earthquake and one-tenth of a city was destroyed, that 7,000 people died. And because this is an incredible reversal from what the Old Testament often talks about. Like in the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah says, hey, the nation of Israel is going to be taken into captivity, but don't worry, I'm going to bring a tenth of the people back and I'm going to settle them back in the land. God says, don't worry, the destruction will not be complete. I will bring a tenth of my people back. But you realize what God is saying here, the promise here, is that God's not bringing a tenth back, he's bringing nine-tenths back. That through the, through, through the faithful witness of these people, of these people who are willing to not only testify to Jesus, but to take into their body his death and his rising, that a, a huge amount of people are affected by that message, are called to repentance by that message, are saved through that message. So yes, the words are important, but the, but the living testimony, being willing to die and to suffer and to experience the resurrection life of Jesus, that that is what gives these witnesses uh, testimony, power, and authority. 
and it teaches us about what it means for us uh, to live in this world. It teaches us about who we are, about our identity. It teaches us about our message and the means by which we bring that message faithfully out into the world. So if you go with me, we're talking about identity, right? That essentially uh, Moses and Elijah, these kind of uh, these images that we're playing with here in Revelation 11, that they're representative of us. That that's who that's who we not not, not are called to be. That's who uh, Revelation says that we are. That's what Jesus calls us. If you go back to John 5, guys, I'm kind of geeking out on all the Bible cross-references. Are you with me here this morning? I know it's a lot of back and forth, okay? But in Revelation, in Revelation 5, John says, hey, there are a lot of people here who don't believe who I am. But let me tell you, Jesus says, there are, there are two people who speak and testify to my identity as the Son of God. The first one is John the Baptist. And who is John the Baptist consistently associated with from the Old Testament? Elijah, right? He says, the other person who gives testimony to me is Moses. Jesus says that you don't have to accept me based on my own authority. Accept me based on the testimony of Elijah and Moses. And then what does he call us? He says in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, power and authority, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the very ends of the earth. That what he's saying is that though in the same way that Moses and Elijah are given this ministry of testifying out into the world the truth of who God is, in the same way that they testify to the truth of who Jesus is, we are now pulled into that ministry. He's saying that's who we are as people who have been claimed by the paradox of the gospel. And of people who have been washed in the blood of the lamb who was slain, we are saying that paradox has now come in and consumed our lives. We found it good and true and beautiful. And that we're now called into this great cosmic drama of proclaiming that truth. To be witnesses. It's who we are. And that, that's the message that we proclaim. That is the goodness of that paradox, the beauty of that paradox, the power of the paradox, that there is power in weakness. It's the power and weakness that has come, that has saved us, that is the source of all of our hope. That's the source of all of our joy. That's the source of the peace that we carry with us in this life. And that that was achieved for us not by our own efforts, but by what God has accomplished on our behalf. That we say to people, not, oh, look at us, we're so amazing, we found all the right answers, we do it right. No, that we are a repenting people. A people who are willing to say, oh, guys, who say to the world, we are so often caught up, I wish I should have brought the mirror back, but just picture a full-length standing mirror here for me. Okay, we're, we're a people who say, man, we know what it's like to be captured by the image of our own self-sufficiency. Man, we know what it's like to be imprisoned uh, to, to our own images. We know what it's like to be enslaved to our need to prove ourselves to ourselves and to other people. And what we say to the world is, oh, that's, it's a prison. And it's a prison that we often have lived in. And then we testify to, well, we have also been captured by the goodness and the truth of the and the beauty of this paradox of the lamb, the lion who's become the lamb who was slain. That we are in need of it just like everybody else. And it's, uh, it's coming here on Sunday mornings. It's participating in the, in the workings of the life of this church, uh, both as an institution, right, as an or and as an organism that we, are, that we are shaped into, that we are reminded of that reality. 
that this is who we are as a people. That as we do this life together, uh, when we come to the communion table together, we hold out our hands together, we are fed the body and blood of Jesus together, we're reminded that this paradox is, is who we are. As we learn to forgive each other and pay this heavy cost of loving each other, we're living out the power of this paradox. That as you walk into this room with people uh, who you would not in any other situations be friends with, which happens in this room, right? People who might in your small group bug the heck out of you. When you realize I'm a part of this community not because I chose it and because all these people are just like me, but because I've been brought into it by the grace of God, as you work that out and live that out, as you're a part of this worshiping community, we're, we're formed into a people who embrace this paradox. That's what's happening here this morning. We've talked about the fact that as, as a congregation, that what we want to be about is that, that we would be a thriving community of worship and witness. And that's why the worship comes first, because this is the place that we are reminded that this message is first for us before it's for the world. That's the message. So what's the means by which we take it out into the world? Well, first is our words. That we're called uh, to give testimony to the truth of who Jesus is. And you may have a lot of ideas in your head about what that means or doesn't mean based potentially on the way that you were raised in church. Like I can tell you, I learned a lot of methods that sometimes had to do with meeting people on the street to tell them about Jesus. That's not necessarily what I'm talking about here this morning, okay? Or even the, or even the diagrams that at times I find very helpful in explaining the gospel and what it means. That's not exactly what I'm talking about here. What I'm saying is that we would be a people, what we're called to is that we would be a people who speak what's true with our words. There's an author, Eugene Peterson, who has this to say about uh, Christian witness. He says, the chief difficulty in maintaining Christian witness is timidity. The life of the world is gaudy, noisy, and assertive. The life of faith is modest, quiet, and unassuming. What can ordinary Christians say that will stand a chance in the brash shouting of money and pleasure and ambition, or in the wailing laments of boredom and depression and self-pity? In a society in which the thesaurus of metaphor and symbol has been ransacked by cynical advertisers and faithless artists and indulgent entertainers to condition us to a maniacal but brainless devotion to me and now, how can the imagination be renewed so that we can say honestly and personally without necessarily raising our voices who God is and what eternity means? That's a really long quote. I'm just going to read the first part of it again. The chief difficulty in maintaining Christian witness is timidity. The life of the world is gaudy and noisy and assertive. The life of faith is modest, quiet, and unassuming. What can an ordinary Christian say? Do you ever feel like that? What can I say in a world that is so noisy, that's so overwhelming, that at times seems so uh, opposed to, to, to this paradox of the lion who's become the lamb? What can I say? And the answer is really simple. We tell the truth. In ways that are little and in ways that are big. You guys know this. All throughout the day, we're confronted with all of these opportunities uh, to not tell the truth or to tell it just in part, you know, just like a little piece of it, which by itself often becomes its own kind of lie. And the call of witnesses, the call to say, oh, would you, would you be courageous enough 
to tell the truth. In your daily interactions with people, when you're talking about uh, who Jesus is, to like acknowledge him in normal conversation as a, as a person who we believe in. That is so hard, isn't it? Like even sometimes with other Christians, it's hard. Like when you leave here and you go to lunch, it's way easier to say, well, what did you think of church today? And to say, well, you know, the music was great. Brand was a little bit boring, but you know, that happens sometimes. And to focus on like the performance of what's happening here rather than to say, let me tell you about what Jesus was doing in my heart today. Isn't that so hard? Oh, but that's what we're talking about is that we would be a people who tell the truth who acknowledge the reality of who God is, what he's done for us and what he's doing in us in the world around us. We would use our words to tell the truth. But like we see from this passage, so often our words have a limited effect. That the power of the gospel and the power of the paradox of the lion who has become the lamb who was slain, the place that it is most effective, that it's most fruitful, is in the places that you and I are willing to take into our body the death and the resurrection of our Lord. The places that it's most effective in our lives are the places that we are willing to die to ourselves. And guys, that dying to self, that, that is the act that truly that changed the world that has changed the world that we lived in. If you go all the way back to the beginning of Christianity, when when Christians were persecuted and were brought into the Roman arena, uh, it was their willingness to go joyfully to their deaths that spoke to a world that was watching and waiting. There's this secular historian, his name is Tom Holland. He wrote a book called Dominion, and he has this to say. He says, Christians brought a conviction as potent as it was subversive, that they were actors in a cosmic drama. They did not shrink from the blast of the crowd's breath nor cower before the revolting humiliation visited on them. On the contrary, they fashioned out of their ordeals a public display of their devotion to Christ. Whether gored by bulls or savaged by dogs or roasted on red-hot chairs of iron, they cried out only the words they had repeated all along, the declarations of their faith. In an illustration of this subversive message, one particularly potent example was of a slave girl named Blandina. Every torture inflicted on her, every torment she had fearlessly endured. And that a slave, a slight, frail, despised woman might be set among the elite of heaven, seated directly within the splendor of God's radiant palace, ahead of those who in the fallen world had been her immeasurable superiors, was a potent illustration of the mystery that lay at the heart of the Christian faith. It was these martyrs who consistently were willing to, to, to die and to profess their faith in Jesus while doing so that totally, that totally changed this empire around. That gave birth uh, to, to, the, to the world, that, the, world the, the sense of uh, moral critique of power that we, that we live in today. And more than that, that changed individual lives. That, that there were people who, who stood in arenas shouting and cheering as Christians were being killed who then left there and became Christians themselves because of the willingness they saw of these people to die for what they believed. And in some ways, guys, can I tell you, that seems a little bit easier to me than choosing to die to myself on a daily basis. Now, I know t- technically that's probably not true, right? 
that if I was confronted with the choice of one of those things, I would certainly choose the dying to myself. But there's, there's a challenge in the mundaneness of our life to do that that's so hard to wrap our minds around day after day after day. Like there's this story in a book that I love called The Gospel Comes to the Housekeep by this woman, Rosaria Butterfield, who talks a lot about what it means to love your neighbors really well and to die to self, to love the people around you. And one of the stories she tells is when she was invited to care for her neighbor's cat while her neighbor went out of town. And this may not be very popular here, but I just have to tell you guys, this is a confession, I hate cats, okay? I know that many of you love cats, I, I just, I don't like them. And I, I'm not a big dog person, but they're growing on me, okay? Being around your dogs is helping me. It's, it's, I promise I'm in, the gospel is changing my heart on dogs, not on cats, okay? But this woman, Rosaria Butterfield, is willing, she's, she talks about her willingness to go and to like take care of her neighbor's cat and to feed the cat the pills that it needs, more, you know, uh, during the day, because the cat is sick. And she talks about walking into her neighbor's house and finding that there is cat uh, stuff from inside the cat all over the house when she shows up. And what she realizes, the cat is dying while my neighbor's out of town. What am I going to do? And she keeps going and keeps taking care of the cat. And it gets to the point where she's talking about how she is feeding this cat baby food from an eyedropper. And when she takes this cat... Uh, to be euthanized, that she is cradling the cat's head and is relaying to the cat all of the sweet words that the cat's owner wanted her to pass on to the cat from wherever the person was on vacation because she couldn't get back in time. Is that dying to self? Yes, right? But it's a lot less glamorous picking up cat stuff, right? Feeding a baby dropper, that's a lot less. It's not going to grab headlines. But there's a dying to self there that is, that is what we're talking about here in this passage. It almost seems kind of sacrilegious to say that, to, to talk about dying to self as something kind of like that every day. But that's what we're talking about, guys. The laying down of our own self-interest for the love of the people around us, ultimately for the love of Jesus. And when, when you hear that, it may be that what comes up in you is this sense of like fighting back against it. Is anyone experiencing that right now? Like, listen, I have boundaries, right? Here you are trying to shame me into loving people and giving up something that I want. Like, I've been down that road before. Okay, yes, that is not what we're talking about. And when that's what we're being pulled to, we're missing the point. Because the love that we are called to is a love that is unforced. The fact that we are people of the paradox means that we've been set free. You have been set free. This is not about being manipulated, having your arm twisted by people to do what they want you to do for them. No, this is out of the freedom that God has given you, you choosing to lay down your life for the people around you, us choosing to lay down our lives for the people around us. Even the person who is sitting next to you right now, which I will tell you is the hardest person to do it for. Am I right? And in the daily choosing to die to ourselves, what we get to experience is the power of the paradox in our own lives. That it's not just for the people out there, that it's for us. That as we choose to die to ourselves, what we get to experience is the life-giving nature of the gospel coming in and breathing life back into us. That we get to be people who experience resurrection in our day-to-day -day lives. That's the call before us, the call uh, to be a people who are willing to witness, to tell the truth in our words and with our lives of the power of the paradox, of the lion uh, who's become the lamb who, was, the lamb who was slain for us. And the band's gonna come up here in a minute, we're gonna worship and we're gonna have a chance to repent and to lay before the Lord the places in our lives uh, where we have refused to die to ourselves.
that we'll have a chance to confess uh, the places that our pride has been so strong. And then to experience uh, the grace of him meeting us there and the power of celebrating that out into our world. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you uh, for, for this book and for these images that are at times super weird. Uh, but Lord, we trust that you are meeting us in them, that you are uncovering things for our hearts that we would not be able to see if we were just being told the truth, Lord, as much as being shown it. I pray, God, that as we, uh, as we worship now, uh, that, the, that the picture uh, of the lion who has become the lamb, Jesus, that you would capture our hearts with it, that you would pull us away from our staring in the mirror, from the ways that we are consumed with our own searches uh, for power and for pleasure, Lord, for ambition, from our pride, and that we would be turned toward you uh, to see what is good and true and beautiful in the paradox of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.